Welcome to The Q Word, a podcast about the tips, trends, and taboos of emergency nursing, where we pull the hospital curtain back on issues that emergency nurses and their patients often think about but seldom talk about. You found the Q Word Podcast. This episode is sponsored by the Region 5 RTAC and the Georgia Trauma Commission. As part of the State of Georgia's trauma system, EMS Region 5's Regional Trauma Advisory Committee works to improve trauma outcomes in Central Georgia. The RTAC is composed of EMS agencies, participating hospitals, trauma system stakeholders, and members of the public. We are doing something a little bit different for the Keyword Podcast, sort of our two-year anniversary, two-year birthday. Yeah, that's exactly what this is. So happy birthday, Nisa. It was lovely making a baby podcast with you two years ago. That's right. Two years has flown by. So tell us a little bit about what we are doing right now. We are doing a multi-part series on the special populations in trauma. And it's something that has been born out of the COVID times. Uh, We've been asked by Trauma Commission to create some educational content because right now we can't hold in-person classes and it's important to continuously have trauma education getting out. So this is a forum where we're able to provide education and um, we are super excited to be a part of it. Yeah, this is great. This is a more focused and directed set of episodes. It's going to be a little outside of what you normally get from us, but we hope that it'll be educational and still entertaining, and it will fill out our keyword podcast repertoire nicely. Yeah, it's some really, really good information. Great. So we are going to basically examine trauma in four main populations, and we are going to kind of start at the beginning of the life cycle, in a manner of speaking, right? That's right. So our first episode is on pregnancy. That's right. And this special population series focuses on these vulnerable groups. This episode will be the pregnant trauma patient. Um, These vulnerable groups that require modifications to the standard trauma assessment and different interventions or additional interventions from a traditional trauma patient. Great. Exactly. So before we get too much farther... Can you actually define for me pregnant? Meaning it's, I mean, I, I, I know what it means, <laughs> but uh, I, I guess that somebody who's um, two months along is vastly different than somebody who's eight and a half months along. Yeah, it's an important observation and an important distinction. And really for the purposes of the trauma bay and for those who care for um, trauma patients, any woman of childbearing age is considered pregnant until proven otherwise. And so it's one of the first laboratory tests that we want results on. Um, And until we get that result back, we presume that a woman is pregnant and treat her as such. Um, And as we go throughout this episode, I will tell you about the different gestations that are important and what that means for the assessment and the intervention. One more question. This is another follow-up. When you have a pregnant patient, who's more important, the mother or the baby? Oh, the age-old question. 
The chicken or the egg. <laughs> That's right. Literally the chicken or the little chicklet. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is an age-old question, and it's a really another very astute and important one. And sometimes for a novice trauma provider, the pregnant patient can be similar to a distracting injury like a, a an amputation or a big burn where the trauma provider gets focused on that pregnancy or that baby and um, and they forget to do the basics that will save the life of both of them. So what we say is that we save the life of the mother to save the life of the baby. We treat mom to treat the baby. And so Really, um, it, it is a package deal, but we're going to focus on mom, and by focusing on mom, it saves baby. Okay. So, tell me more. What do we start with? So, the first thing to know is how pregnant women get injured, and that is the epidemiology behind the pregnant trauma patient. Okay, so you mean like the most common reasons why a pregnant woman would present herself at the ER? That's right. We'll talk about the top three most common reasons, and the first one is motor vehicle collision. Okay, that makes that makes sense. And motor vehicle collision is the number one cause of trauma across most of the trauma populations. We'll, we'll see that as our series progresses. Okay, cool. So now, is it like that moment, like in TV, when uh, the mother is like giving birth in the car and they get into a car accident on the way, or is this just like you know your regular your regular fender bender? I mean, it might be that moment for sure, but I think this is a, <laughs> I think this is just um, probably more the the other. I've never actually seen a television episode where that happens, but I've seen lots of commercials for television episodes where that happens. So I assume that it must be a very common occurrence in the ER. Yeah. I've been watching way too much TV. <laughs> so the second most common reason for the pregnant trauma patient to present is a fall. And the fall is actually the number one most common cause of the minor injury. And the reasons why they fall include this big gravid belly, the loosening of the joints that are preparing them for delivering the baby, um, the altered center of gravity. Balance. (laughs) That's right. Um, Sometimes along with this um, gravid uterus comes shortness of breath, dizziness, fatigue, edema, and all of those can contribute to falling. I think I'm afraid I know what number three is. Um, it is domestic violence. Am I right? Yeah. So unfortunately, up to 20% of all pregnancies experience domestic abuse. And there are a lot of psychosocial reasons behind that. One in five women experience intimate partner abuse during their pregnancy. Okay, so let's cycle back around to um, motor vehicle collisions. Now that you've figured out that they were in a car accident, what do you do next with a pregnant woman? What's the most important thing you have to look at? So one of the pieces of information that if you can know this information before the patient even arrives into your trauma bay, it's good information to know. But whether or not your pregnant patient was wearing her seatbelt, Um, If she's not wearing her seatbelt during the motor vehicle collision, she has an increased risk of fetal death or premature birth. The other thing to know is, um, especially particularly in that third trimester, is was mama wearing her seatbelt correctly? How is a pregnant woman supposed to wear her seatbelt correctly? So the correct way to wear the seatbelt is wearing it under the pregnant belly, so across the hips, and then with the uh, shoulder harness intact, so you'll wear that sort of between the breasts. It's it's uncomfortable. I mean, seatbelts are uncomfortable, and especially when you have um, this belly. 
Um, and so sometimes moms have a tendency to wear it too high or they they will tuck the shoulder harness back behind them. And those are both really dangerous. So they put too much pressure on the belly and that can be really dangerous. And that's where you run into injuries that are that uterine rupture, which is extremely dangerous for baby and mother both, has a very high mortality. And, um, and then that premature delivery. One other interesting piece of information from the evidence tells us that the risk for airbag versus no airbag deployment is no different uh, with a pregnant patient versus a non-pregnant patient. That was going to be my very next question. So when you have a penetrating injury, that's usually a stabbing or an impalement or a bullet wound. When you have an isolated penetrating injury to the abdomen, because you have the gravid uterus, and that baby there, mom's internal organs are displaced and protected by the baby and the amniotic sac. So moms actually do very well. Unfortunately, they're protected by the baby, so the baby doesn't fare as well. The other thing to remember is if the mom does have a penetrating injury to the abdomen, they do not require immobilization on a long spine board. They do not require um, cervical spine immobilization with a collar. So that's important. Why is that? Because you're, they don't risk, if it's just an isolated injury to the belly, you're not worried about the spine being being injured. So you don't have to, and actually the risks are going to outweigh the benefits in that case. Okay, so that's the epidemiology of car accidents and other types, types of injuries for our patients. So what comes next? It's uh, assessment and intervention, correct? Right. So you've received report, hopefully, um, from a pre-hospital provider that you are receiving a pregnant trauma patient of some kind. Okay. The next most important thing to do is if you have the ability to, you want to get obstetrics on board as soon as possible, even before your patient has arrived, if possible. So if you have an OB department in your hospital, go ahead and call the on-call physician, get them, get them down there. If you've got OB nurses that can come with monitoring equipment, that would be great. If you, uh, that would be really not great, really mandatory. <laughs> if, if you don't have that capability, let's say you're a smaller community hospital and you don't have OB in-house, getting prepared to transfer this patient as soon as you can, getting an OB physician on the phone so that you can consult with them when that patient comes rolling in and you can put eyes on them and assess them. But getting OB involved really, really early on is going to be really key for uh, successful care of this patient. Gotcha. So now we're going to assess our trauma patient, and we're going to go through our ABCDEs that we use on every trauma patient. Okay, you're going you're gonna to have to remind me about the ABCDEs. Let's just, sure. For the sake of this first episode, why don't you give me a nice refresher course on that in case you have any new uh, young nurses listening in, um, and then people can refer back to that in our follow-up episode. So remind me, what are the ABCDEs of assessment? So ABCDEs of assessment are great for a trauma patient. They're really great for a medical patient as well. And we're going to be highlighting the deviations that we would use on our specific populations. Okay. But just sort of the 60-second elevator pitch version is for the airway, you want to open and maintain it open using cervical spine control, any adjuncts that you would need to add to make that happen. For breathing, you want to oxygenate and ventilate. For circulation, you want to control any external bleeding and resuscitate their volume. 
For disability, you want to do a brief neurological exam using the Glasgow Coma Scale, which was designed specifically for trauma patients. And you're going to check their pupillary response for reactivity and symmetry. Okay. And um, E is exposure and environment. We like to say we're going to get them trauma naked and trauma warm. That means we're taking everything off, and then we're going to use some rewarming measures to keep them warm in the trauma bay. Okay. So that's a very quick version of the ABCDEs. All right. So, uh, so now we have a pregnant lady rolling in. Correct. How do you change those ABCDEs? So for airway breathing, circulation, disability, environment on the pregnant lady, the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to put mom on supplemental oxygen. We're going to put her on a non-rebreather at 100%. Now we have talked about in previous episodes that the goal for oxygenation no longer is 100% on most patients, that we are looking at 99, anywhere from 94% to 99% is the acceptable range. The pregnant patient is one of the rare exceptions. We want her non-rebreather 100% is okay. And we understand that the pulse oximetry can be saturated more than 100%. But what we also know is that we cannot put a pulse ox probe on that baby. We don't know how much uh, oxygenation that baby is getting. So for the time being, we want to get mom as much oxygen as we can so that we ensure that we are getting baby as much oxygen as we can. So so what we're deciding is that the benefits in this case outweigh the risks. The other thing is that while we are resuscitating her, it's going to be such a short time period that we are doing this that we've decided that it's okay in this scenario. So go ahead and put her on a 100% non-rebreather while we're resuscitating her. So that's one uh, little deviation that we allow in the pregnant patient. Continuing on with airway, if our um, pregnant patient requires intubation, and we're going to be using rapid sequence induction for intubation. The medications are the same, dosages will be the same, but keep in mind that if you do use a long-acting paralytic on mom, like rocuronium, and do a cesarean section immediately after you have intubated mom, the baby will still have effects of that paralytic on board, so you will have to support baby's oxygenation and ventilation. If you don't do a cesarean section and baby stays in utero, baby's fine. But if you are going to be doing a rapid cesarean after mom has been induced, then keep in mind that the baby will be feeling the effects of the paralytic and you will have to support baby. Oof, so much to think about. Okay, so those are both airway. Um, is it time for breathing? Yes, time for breathing. So if mom requires a chest tube in the trauma bay, uh, indications for that would be a pneumothorax or a hemothorax. Normally, we would place a chest tube, and by we, I mean a provider, would place a chest tube in the fifth intercostal space. But in this case, there's a little nugget there. So you've got to go a little bit higher. You would go up two uh, spaces. So you're going to move up to the third intercostal space on a, um, a someone in the second or third trimester you would need to move up. Mm, okay. So for nursing implications, that would mean you would just want to remind a provider of that. Okay. Still, that's that's a nice little rule of thumb. Simple, easy yes. to remember. Yes. Okay. So now we can move to circulation. Ah, circulation. I, was waiting. I wanted to get there earlier. <laughs> so um, 
In circulation, it's really important to remember with the, the um, pregnant trauma patient that when you place her on the long spine board and lay her flat, that gravid uterus is going to lay on her inferior vena cava. That's one of her large vessels that provides her venous return. So that baby is going to push on her vena cava. And it's going to, she, she may develop something called vena cava syndrome. It will mimic hypotension. It will make her feel queasy. It will make her feel dizzy. Uh, she will get cool and clammy. And so in order to prevent that, when you are transporting her in the pre-hospital environment or when you have her in the trauma bay before she's been cleared off the backboard, uh, she still needs to be immobilized. So what we do is we just tip her up on her left side. Um, so you're going to just stick a towel or a blanket up under that long spine board. And when we tip it, we're looking at about four to six inches, which is about 10 to 15 centimeters of tilt to just move that, tip that um, uterus off of the vena cava. And that should be enough to restore that flow so she doesn't experience that vena cava syndrome. And, and then you want to reassess and make sure that that has worked and that it isn't, in fact, hypotension that she's suffering from. Um, how long does it take for vena cava syndrome to set in? Uh, are we talking five minutes in, on a spine board or are you talking a couple of hours? No, no, no. Very quickly. Oh, very shortly. Interesting. Okay. So what if she can't be tipped on her left side because she has a broken leg on her on that side or something? Yeah, it's a really good really good question. So she can be tipped on her right side if um, if she has an injury that precludes being tipped on her right. Also, you can actually manually displace with uh, with your hands. You can displace that uterus as well. Ooh, that's weird <laughs> to think about. <laughs> so a couple other considerations in circulation would be... Um, so we try to avoid vasopressors in trauma patients. Really, the goal is volume resuscitation, but really need to avoid vasopressors in the pregnant patient because when you're squeezing those vessels, it's going to decrease uterine blood flow, and that can really be detrimental to the fetus. Okay. So speaking of volume resuscitation, when you are resuscitating a pregnant patient with blood products, it's very important to um, resuscitate them with O negative if you haven't gotten her type and cross matched yet. Um, and that avoids the alloimmunization in RH negative moms. So you haven't had the, you know, to type and cross her yet, then you don't want to, to cause that um, alloimmunization. Okay, interesting. So as early as 10 weeks gestation, you should be able to use the Doppler to find fetal heart tones. And that's something that you should be checking in the trauma bay. Even if you're not, even if you don't have OB in-house, you can take the Doppler and find those little fetal heart tones. That's something you can be checking every 10 minutes or so. And normal fetal heart tones, fetal heart rate should be 120 to 160. Anything below that is bradycardia. Anything above that is tachycardia in the fetus and shows that the fetus is in distress. And so the way that you treat that is put mom on her left side, put her on a non-rebreather, and give her uh, a fluid bolus. And then, of course, contact OB if you have not already. Another interesting observation that I've seen happen in the trauma bay is imagine that you have a patient that comes in that's unresponsive, as trauma patients often do, and they can't tell you that they are 
Uh, it's an, And it's not obvious yet that they are pregnant. And some people look very pregnant when they're not, and some people don't look very That's pregnant right. when they are. Right. And the way that a trauma bay is configured, oftentimes the scribe, so it's, it's generally a nurse, the scribe is sort of set off to the side where they can observe sort of the whole... Uh, resuscitation, and they are either at a computer station or, or s- sometimes they are still handwriting the the whole uh, trauma resuscitation. I've even been in one trauma bay in Greenville, South Carolina, where they're sort of up on a podium, kind of on a stand, and looking at a bird's eye view of the way that the trauma is being run. Very interesting, really cool. Sort of like the old uh, operating amphitheater. I thought it was genius. But at any rate, so the scribe has sort of this unique vantage point by design over the whole trauma resuscitation. But the other thing that the scribe has is sort of a profile view of the patient. And so sometimes it's the scribe who first says, hey, um, is that is that a gravid uterus? And you can sort of see that this might be like looking like a, an early little little belly there. Uh, So sometimes it is just sort of discovered that this is a gravid uterus. So one thing that that you should know is that at 20 weeks gestation, which is halfway through a pregnancy, the gravid uterus will reach the umbilicus, which is the navel. So just a quick and dirty reference for you is if the gravid uterus is above the umbilicus, then they're greater than 20 weeks. If it's below the umbilicus, then they're less than 20 weeks. One of the reasons why that's really important to know is that um, the viability of a fetus is around the 23 to 24 week mark. So if that gravid uterus is much above the umbilicus, they may be around that viability mark. So that's just a very quick and dirty way to sort of estimate if your patient is unable to tell you. So that's something that you would need to know in a trauma bay. Now I also know that the word umbilicus is another word for belly button, and now I will never say belly button again. Look at that. I love it. Vocabulary. (laughs) Okay, so we have considered our patient's airway, her breathing, and her circulation. Really, for disability and exposure and environment, there are no differences. Okay. So when we're considering our secondary survey... Um, you want to evaluate for contractions. So you want to ask her if she's feeling any contractions. Um, Also things that may be contractions, but may mimic um, other things like, okay, so she may say she's really uncomfortable on the hard backboard, uh, but it may be back contractions. So she says, I'm feeling a lot of back pain. This backboard really hurts, but it's coming and going. Wait a minute now. Hold on. (laughs) Um, Also, if your patient is uh, unresponsive or intubated, for instance, you may need to be putting your hands on the abdomen and see if it's becoming firm, coming and going, because your patient can't tell you if they're contracting. Hopefully, you will have OB coming down directly and putting them on continuous fetal monitoring, uh, and and you'll be able to uh, determine if they're contracting that way. But initially in the trauma bay, you need to be checking because a, a traumatic event can induce labor. So you need to be checking on that. Oh. Is the belly feeling tight? Is she feeling pain? Is there back uh, back pain? Yeah, hopefully you can get somebody in there to take a look before the little nugget comes popping out. Yes. So you want someone who's trained in examinations and pelvic examinations to examine your patient. And what they are looking for is they're looking for blood, They're looking for a ruptured amniotic sac. They're looking for a little hand ready to high five you or like you said, the head or some other presenting part. That's not what you want to see. Okay. All right. Great. Oh, not great, but good information. (laughs) That's right. Okay. 
Um, so we mentioned falls earlier that they often lead to minor injuries for mom. However, a fall where she lands on her belly can lead to significant injuries for the baby. Um, so the advice is that e- e- when a mother is injured in a trauma, even if it's a minor trauma, if there are no other obvious injuries that would require her to be hospitalized, that you at least have her stay in the hospital and be observed for six hours. That can occur in the ER. It can occur in an OBS unit. It can occur up in L&D, wherever you're most comfortable. And it can depend on your facility's um, policies. It can depend on how pregnant she is. Um, For instance, one facility that I've worked at, if she's less than 16 weeks, she would stay in the ER. If she's greater than 16 weeks, once she gets cleared, she would go up to L&D. But the recommendation is if she has no other injuries, but she's uh, been in a significant trauma enough to come to the, to the hospital, then she at least needs to stay for observation for six hours. Okay. Let me ask you, um, what if, is there a difference if it's their first child or their fifth child? Um, Is it a difference if the mother is um, 50 years old, you know, Murphy Browning it, or, uh, (laughs) or if she's, does anybody know Murphy Brown kids, ask your parents, or does, you know, or, you know, teenage, teenage mom, you know, whatever, what does that make a difference? Yes. And so those are questions that you want to ask in your secondary assessment as well. So some of the things that you want to find out that would be different than a medical history in a a non-pregnant patient would be um, how many total pregnancies has this patient had? How many um, children does she have at home? Has she had any miscarriages or abortions? Um, Has she had prenatal care? Um, What is her estimated date of conception? Um, has this, does this baby have any, um, health concerns that she's aware of previous to this trauma? And then of course, any of pre-existing conditions that mom might have that could impact her, um, her pregnancy. So those would all be things that you would need to know for sure. All right. So are there any, um, like other issues that I, I just think that pregnancy, because there's two lives that are so intricately involved with each other that there would be ethical issues that that would you'd have to consider under those circumstances, perhaps outside of what you would with normal patients? Yeah, so um, the trauma bay and really the hospital is um, oftentimes the place where someone finds out they're pregnant in the first place. They didn't know they were. Right, I've heard about um, that. And as far as the pediatric pregnant patient, sometimes when they come into the trauma bay, this is when a a minor child will find out that they are pregnant or or you find out that they're pregnant. They knew that they did, but their parents don't. And so you need to be aware of that. And that needs to be handled very carefully because even a minor child who is pregnant um, now has the right to determine whether their parents know or not. So that's something that you need to handle very carefully um, and be aware of your state or your country's policies on that. Okay. So when you say handle it carefully, be maybe talk to the hospital admin, <laughs> bring somebody else in, talk to your charge nurse. Uh, is that correct? Before uh, blurting the news out to anybody who walks in the door. Okay. So uh, the other ethical, main other ethical issue that comes up with pregnancy is our intimate partner and uh, violence and domestic violence that we talked about earlier. 
when a woman comes to, well, when people come to the emergency room, it's a good idea to do domestic violence screening. Uh, that often happens in triage, but a domestic violence screening should happen on pregnant women as well, particularly pregnant trauma patients. If you have suspicions that this may be an intimate partner event. Your institution may have a screening tool. If they do, that's excellent. It doesn't have to be something complex. It doesn't have to be something long. It can be something as simple as, have you been kicked, hit, punched, or otherwise hurt by someone within the past year? If so, who is that person? Do you feel safe in your current relationship? Do you feel safe in your home? Is there a partner from a previous relationship who's making you feel unsafe now? And if the partner is present in the trauma bay or in the room, nurses often can get very creative on sending them on an errand to go and do or some, you know, make up an excuse for the reason why they need to step out for some procedure that we need to do so that the screening can be done very quickly um, while they are obviously don't do it while they're in the room. Scary stuff. Okay. That's everything that we need to know in terms of pearls and pitfalls and other considerations for our, our pregnant patient. So let me ask you, uh, so you have a pregnant um, patient presenting at the hospital and she's coding. What do you do? Yeah, so um, end-of-life considerations in a pregnant patient. There is very little difference in CPR on a pregnant patient. I will say that if the the reason for the arrest is something where mom has had hypovolemia, then that means that baby has had hypovolemia as well. It's going to be a very poor outcome for both. But if mom has an isolated injury, like for instance, an isolated head injury, and that is the cause of the arrest, there is something called a perimortem C-section. And this is really a last ditch effort. It's kind of a Hail Mary. If you have someone who is skilled in C-sections, who can perform that C-section within four or five minutes of mom's arrest, there is a possibility that baby can be saved, that, that you can do a fetal salvage. It is a very unique scenario. It is very rare, but it is something called a perimortem C-section. Yeah, television would have you think that it happens all the time. It's uh, very common to go ahead and just do an emergency C-section and and save the baby. Um, Oh, that makes for really good ratings. It does make for good ratings, but I'm beginning to figure out that it doesn't make for good reality. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, I guess one thing that I would say, too, that is occurring to me as I'm thinking about patients that I've had in the trauma bay, that psychosocially, moms are and and families are going to be really, really worried. I mean, rightfully so about this baby. So psychosocially, um, this is a really, uh, it's a poignant and emotional, uh, yeah, volatile even. Um, so, so be aware of that when you've got, uh, be extra patient, extra considerate. There, there are so many more considerations with something like this. Uh, that's right. Uh, cultural, religious, uh, health, the mother's wishes, the family's wishes, the father's wishes, what's best for the baby. Yeah. There's going to need, they're, they're going to require a lot more reassurance. So just keep that in mind. And it's fair. I mean, if it were me or my family member, uh, I think that's only fair. All right. Okay. So pregnant patients need to be treated uh, as all patients do with extra care, but there are different considerations uh, and different assessment tools depending upon the epidemiology of their injury and how far along they are. Right? Am I getting it right? 
Very well put. Nice, nice. Okay, see, I've learned something, and hopefully our listeners have too. Yes. Excellent. Well, our next chapter in this journey through the life cycle in terms of trauma patients is pediatrics. So now that little nugget has safely emerged from the womb, mom is fine. We've, We've done well. Uh, and we are going to talk about what to do with uh, those bouncing baby boys and girls on our next episode. Sounds fun. Great. Look forward to talking to you then. Bye, niece. Bye.